Um, hey everyone, yeah. this is just me, Gomer. Um, I'm in the middle of Camp Cove, Chris. Luke is in the middle of closing his house, and he had a whole bunch of crazy stuff happen. So he, I don't even know all the story, but he can't be here tonight. So sadly, it's just Lonesome Gomer. But I have, uh, I'm on the phone with Jess straight out at Wiffle, I almost said Wiffle Creek, Wiffle Tree Farm. And uh, we're going to talk about his whole experience as a farmer. And I think this is so awesome because he wrote to us maybe, what was it, about a year, year and a half ago? Uh, Sounds about right. Yeah. And then, and I was like, oh my gosh, this would be awesome. And then back burner. <laughs> like, we would love, let's have him on. Let's talk about that back burner. Right. And so you <laughs> sent us a Thanksgiving, was it a Thanksgiving card? Do you know what oh, I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, the yeah. turkeys. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, we took a picture of the turkeys and like their pose was so cool and a sort of new kids in the block cool that we had to sort of uh, juxtapose it next to, you know, some boy band photos. <laughs> that one Luke's art, I think. Um, so wait, wait, describe your farm <laughs> for us. Like how long have you, did you come from farmers? Like what's your background? Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Okay, so. I was born and raised here in Warrington, Virginia, which is like 50 miles southwest of D.C. It's kind of a, an ex an exurb, you know, we're yeah. sort of a, just outside the suburbs. And I was pretty much a normal suburban kid. Um, so I had, you know, uh, like, you know, in my county, you might live near a farm, but like, you know, my parents aren't farmers. I had no thought of becoming a farmer. I had very stereotypical ideas about what it was to be a farmer. So, you know, I went off to college and I, um, you know, had all kinds of thoughts about what I might do, you know, doctor, you know, lawyer, I, I, I'm, I'm a convert. So I was actually thinking about, you know, maybe becoming a pastor or something like that. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I, I, um, I guess we could, if you want to, we could kind of get into my story about how I became Catholic too, because it's kind of interrelated. But I'll Ugh, I'll stick boring, to the, the farm now. Boring. No, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I guess the, the interesting thing is that like Easter Sunday, two thousand nine, my wife and I both came into the Catholic Church, and Easter Monday, we started our farm, two thousand nine. So That's awesome. In a weekend, like yeah, in a weekend, like uh, two of the biggest decisions of my life happened, um, and. Uh, I had to take the whole next week off, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, so basically I, you know, I was doing pre-med and religious studies at UVA, you know, obviously had no thought about, you know, becoming a farmer. And then, um, a friend after when I graduated, um, my wife and I got married the summer afterwards and, um, a friend sent us, um, a book by Wendell Berry, uh, one of his short novels. And, uh-oh. um, uh, I read it reluctantly. Sorry, what were you saying? I was saying, uh-oh, Wendell Berry. He's the beginning. Yeah. You yeah, start right. with yeah, Wendell Berry, slope. you go to Joel Saladin, and then all of a sudden you're reading about Catholic land movement and distributism. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, basically Wendell Berry wooed me. Joel Saladin was sort of the uh, the nuts and bolts you know, guy to like – for someone like me who has no farming experience and would be totally foolish to, to take that plunge, Joel really laid out a business and a farm model that was both – you know, emotionally and, you know, spiritually compelling, but also, you know, it was like, okay, this isn't, um, irresponsible. Here's a business plan that I might actually be able to like provide for my family. Um, why is farming 
in my mind, just associated with like poverty and razor thin margins. And like, I think of the <laughs> yeah. price of food and I like me and my wife. So uh, everyone in the audience is probably going to hate it, but I'm doing this whole financial stuff. I talk about it all the time now, but part of it is realizing like, why is our budget out of control? And it's food, transportation, and mortgage, right? Like, once you can, if you can dial back any of those, right? So, like, it's very appealing to take a seed and some soil and grow your own food. I mean, number one, it's hard damn work. But, the like, I always think of, like, uh, from from what I hear in stories, like, the corporate farm is is the typical American farm. And it is... Like these farmers are like scraping by. What what's going on there? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. But I think the how it start would say that it, it's a it's a a very special kind of industry where there is very strong monopolies at the top. So I don't know a lot of industries that are as monopolized as the industrial food. You know, industry, which is which is to say that, you know, they the, the the you know, the several corporations that essentially buy all the food to then process, package and sell to you, they have all the leverage. And so the measly little farmer, you know, is just he just takes his marching orders, you know, like, OK, what will you pay for my chicken? OK, that's what you'll pay. OK, that's what I'll sell to you for. And they have no negotiating power. So what do you call that you know, a monopsony? Are... Is that a monopsony <laughs> where you have monopoly buyers, right? Isn't that what they call it? A monopsony instead of a monopoly? I think that's what that yeah, is. Yeah, you where... know, I you you know more than me. I don't know that term, but oh, um... man, all our guests say that. All of our guests say you know more than me. <laughs> if only Luke would say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh so anyway, so basically it's um I think it's just a you know, it's a, it's a very particular industry. Yeah. And have on one side really powerful people who control the the sales end, and then on the other side you have very um, not powerful people who are growing the food and um, and you know just take their take their orders. So you know I think that has a, a large part to do with it. Um, and then of course you know for the last um, whatever sixty seven years our sort of like, you know, national and, and just cultural agenda has been for, um, cheap, you know, so like raise it fast, raise it cheap. And, um, and of course, like it's good to do things efficiently and, and, and it's good to like, you know, it would be a noble goal for me to like try and raise my food so I can charge people less. Like I recognize that as a noble goal, but of course, like that's just part of the picture. Cause like, we got to remember like, what's the point of food, right? Like the point of food is like human health and, and of course like, you know, animal and, and land health, you know, but so I just think that basically, um, uh, so part of the picture, part of the consideration here has been lost to like, let's just get it cheap as opposed to like, well, yeah, get it cheap is good, but also like, let's not develop chronic diseases while we're doing that and, you know, make our land so we can't keep doing this later on. Um, so, and, and I guess that kind of brings in, um, you know, just an important like Catholic understanding of the fallenness of humans, you know? So like when given an opportunity, you know, I'm prone to this too. Like humans are prone to cut corners, you know, for their self-interest. And, um, 
And it doesn't, it's not a prudent idea to hide away food production from the accountability of people watching, you know, regular Joe's watching. Um, because we know that like human nature, like, uh, will succumb to those temptations and, uh, and, and especially for something that's so fundamental for human flourishing, like, you know, the health of our, of our people and of our land, um, you know, this would be all the more important to like, let's not, let's, of all the things we hide away and not have in sort of public scrutiny, like, let's not make food one of those, um, oh, because man. we know, you know, humans, and, and I know this firsthand, like, I'll tell you right now, like, uh, that's, that's put it on the negative side, on the positive side, like, I, I love how our farm is transparent and, you know, our customers come and see our animals and see the land because sometimes I really don't want to move the hens to fresh pasture and I have other things I want to do, but I know, you know what, like when those customers roll up and they see the muddy mess that the hens are in because I didn't move them to fresh pasture yet, like that's not going to look good. And so accountability like can really encourage you to be more virtuous you know so like so, so you're saying that's this the in contrast to like these major operations that you see if anyone's seen the documentary food inc right like that right. which is where i was first introduced to joel saladin right um the yeah. idea of like you have to have hidden cameras smuggled in by employees right. who are risking their livelihood yeah. to show you right. how they slaughter pigs and how they um, right. raise chickens and what they do with the pig poop afterwards and how it's contaminating, yeah. you know, drinking water and like all of this stuff upon stuff. Whereas like Joel Saladin's yeah. farm and your farm, it's like, no, I want people who buy my food yeah. to understand my food and to see the food. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah and of course, you know, like the, the, the typical line people give is like, you know, we want our customers to have a connection to, to food production and to their farmer and have a relationship and teach their children about where the food comes from and these kinds of things. But it also is not just for the benefit of the customer. It's also very much for the benefit of the farmer, like I said. So it will encourage me to do my best job, you know, because I'm human. I'm tempted to like to take the shortcut, you know? Yeah. So how does your farm, how is it different than – other farms on, on top of the transparency and what, what is like your main, yeah. your main, you know, product or whatever. Yeah. Main product you said? Yeah. Okay. So not so much farming practices, more like what we raise. Yeah. Oh, okay. Of, you know what? Yeah, so all we, of the above. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I've never worked a farm in my <laughs> life. My buddy has a ranch. It's mostly for show. I enjoy it. I ride four wheelers and I drink beer and shoot rifles. Yeah. That's what I do. I've never <laughs> farmed a thing. I tried. And my me and my wife were on our fourth tomato plant. We have killed. Yeah. We've got two red tomatoes, but they're about a tenth the size of what they're supposed to be. But at least they made it to red. So first time we've ever had red tomatoes. Yeah, there you go. Maybe they're cherry tomatoes. Maybe just just tell people that. Yeah, I wish I I wish I wish they were. I wish they were. Yeah. So yeah. So basically, all right. So I'll I'll give you the quickie. So basically, we raise and sell chicken, eggs, turkey, pork, and beef. So we're sort of like your your basic proteins. Um, and then in terms of um, farming practices. You know, I, I, I guess I sort of like starting from the, the foundation, basically I, I try and explain to people that our whole 
approach is to try and approximate natural systems. So like look at how nature thrives and, and the order and the systems that God has put into place. And then, you know, we're not a wildlife preserve here. We're out, out there to make food and to have a business, you know. But that being said, we can approximate natural systems in doing that. Um, so just by way of example, like if you think about animals in the wild, like they will never just hang out in the same spot over and over. Uh, they're always on the move. So movement is is like probably the most critical um, principle of our farm. Our animals are constantly on the move. And it's like, what's the big deal about moving, you know? Well, it's actually a really big deal. And, and, and the reason why is like, let's just take, for example, the chickens. Okay. So we move our meat chickens every morning to fresh pasture. Um, and so what that does is that means that those chickens are not mucking around in their own manure, and so that means that's not a stress on their immune system. You know, they're not ingesting all that feces. Um, and so they're on clean ground. That means, you know, their immune system is not stressed out. Hence, we don't need to use antibiotics because they're not, you know, in a mess. Um, and then that means they can just focus their body's energy into growing, you know, themselves and, and you know, the food that they will be. Um, and then that also means that when we move them to fresh pasture in the morning and they're on that lush, beautiful pasture and they've left that, you know, trampled poopy pasture behind, like there's, that is the most appetizing and palatable greens, uh, for those chickens. So that means they're going to eat more of those, those greens and that's going to make them healthier and make the food healthier and all that. And then also, if you think about it, if we left them in the same spot, they're going to put down too much manure. They're going to eat overgraze the pasture and they're basically going to kill all those plants so, you know, basically, you know, nature, the, the systems of nature, you know, God has like designed, you know, these systems for in this way where like we're properly grazing, we're properly fertilizing, and then we're getting off the land so the land can metabolize that manure and can actually incorporate it. And, and, and it's an asset as opposed to a liability. And then the chicken, you know, is also thriving because it's getting all these fresh greens and clean ground. And so it's a win-win for, you know, the, the land, the animal, and then eventually the eater. And this all just comes through like this one simple principle of movement. Whereas, you know, like, and again, I, I, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to sort of like demonize the conventional system. And, and we should get, I, I want to like give a little caveat here, but like just as a, as a point of contrast, you know, like in these confined animal barns, you know, the chickens stay in the same spot. They have lots of chickens around them. So you got this monoculture of species and they're in this very dirty, you know, place that's just a, a paradise for pathogens. And so then and then, then, of course, that's why you need the antibiotics, because it's a pathogen heaven. Um, so, you know, you have like on the one hand, when you try and imitate nature, you have all these like multifaceted goods to all the different players, the, the land, the animals, the forages, the people that eat the food. And then when you sort of deny those systems, you know, that order that God's given, then you have all these downsides where you're like sick animals, antibiotics, superbugs you know, antibiotics that you're eating, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and before like all your listeners hate me for, you know, like being self-righteous about, you know, over against conventional food. Like I, I really want to say, like, I, I don't, I, I really don't, uh, hate to, I really would hate to come across as sort of like bashing farmers. Um, because I think it's really important to realize that 
farmers grow the food that people want to buy. So, you know, like if, if anyone is to, you know, be blamed for, you know, bad things that are happening in the agricultural world, like I think most people should not be pointing to farmers. Like they're trying to make a living and, and they are trying to like, they basically, they're going where, you know, the market dictates. And of course, like you have some agency in there, but mostly if you're trying to make a living and this is the life that you've, you know, landed in, uh, you know, if, if, if all of a sudden, you know, 75% of America was like, we want food that doesn't exploit the land and doesn't exploit the animals and doesn't exploit the illegal aliens and doesn't exploit the farmers and doesn't exploit the communities. Like, you know, the farmers would be jumping to the job, you know? So like, I just want to like make it clear to all the listeners that like, I'm not a farmer basher, you know, like I, I really, I really, uh, it, that's not, I, I think the right way to go at it, you know? Well, why are you such a farmer basher? <laughs> so, I mean, this is so fascinating to me. So this is, to me, this is the key insight of understanding Pope Francis's Laudato Si, at least my take on it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an ecologist or any of this stuff. I am a moral, if, if I have a claim to anything, it's, you know, Christian moral teaching, right? And so my background is like, when humanity entered the Enlightenment, and I, I harp on this all the time, but when we entered the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment proposed that now it's time to have grown-up thinking, right? We, we, used to, we were children with our religion. Now we're going to be grown-up with philosophy and science. And the yeah. idea was the rest of the world was just a mechanism. And if you twist it here and turn it there, we can make nature give it give up its secrets. You know, if we can put nature on the rack, we can force it to tell us all of its secrets. And we looked at, and this is the power behind like people like Joel Salatin. You look at the ground. He had this great line where he says, Go where there's dirt and take up two handfuls. There are more living things in your two handfuls of dirt than are human persons in the in the world. And he said, but you go to like a modern farm using these st- uh, practices. And he says, and you can find literally sterile dirt where the, the, because of the practices and the chemicals and the pesticides and the fertilizers one after the other in a monocrop situation for decades, you have literally sterilized. So the, for like, my my great thing is number one. I always thought composting was always a thing. I didn't realize it was essentially a relatively new invention, um, especially kind of like using science to make composting better and make and like literally building soil. And the other thing was like this beautiful harmony between the grass that animals eat, you know the 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 things that we eat, the sequestering of carbon into the ground out of the atmosphere and the need of like livestock to do all of this stuff as well. Like livestock are herd animals are just as important to healthy soil as the chickens that scratch it and spread the manure as the, you know, uh, you know, I I think there's totally like, um, especially since a lot of environmentalists are vegans and vegetarians, there is this, they 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 are prevented from seeing the symbiosis between the animals that we eat and the and how they are a part of it but the bigger thing is like the bigger thing for me is that that pope francis turn of like you turn nature into a mechanism 
and we we reduced biology to just chemistry. And I think the arrogance of that we are we're starting to unlearn. And that's what I think Pope Francis's key thing is like. You know, maybe you people, you know, maybe I would have written the encyclical differently. Who cares? But the idea of like Pope John Paul II defended sexual morality because he defended the the nature of the act itself. That is, it is ordered towards certain ends. And when we look at the nature of a chicken and the nature of a pig, it's pigness and all that stuff. You be, you begin to un, un, uncover that like we literally are inheriting three hundred years of supreme arrogance masquerading as adult thinking, and we were children playing with our father's gun, and instead of aiming it at other people, we were aiming it at our food supply. You know, like and there, this is crazy level of damage that we are doing. That you know, to me, my environmentalist like uh, is like. We're ignoring nature, and and obviously in nature's God, we're ignoring nature. We're ignoring the evo- that these things evolved together, and that that's the symbiosis that I think people don't understand. You can't just say, "Well, I want fertile ground, so here's a ton of phosphorus, and that's all I right, need yeah. to do." And then you find right. that so much phosphorus wipes out certain types of bacteria, and you can't just get them back. You know, like it is it is wild. Who knew farming was wild? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think basically like biology is is so subtle and beautiful. Uh, and and the thought of, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium, you know, like putting putting that down, you know, that was just going to solve your problem is uh, is, you know, in one sense, it's just bad science, you know, like. Uh, yeah, that's not, that's just not good science. Um, but then I, you know, you, you're, you're saying something that like is kind of, uh, I don't know, something I think is a really great point about, um, it's a little controversial, but one thing I've been thinking recently about, um, about, uh, sort of vegetarianism or veganism is in like kind of an interesting way, you know, a, a vegetarian vegan, um, who, who, who is, is that for the environmental reasons kind of has the same kind of blinders on as a, uh, conventional industrial agricultural person where they want, you know, that the, say on one hand, like the, uh, conventional ag person will say, let's just stick all our, you know, chickens in a house, give them antibiotics, give them this feed and have them not move around. And they're going to grow real fast. And we're going to put on our blinders to all the ways in which this animal has evolved to thrive in a relationship of, of in an ecological relationship. And likewise, the vegan is saying like, you know, let's forget about the whole ecology of how plants have evolved to thrive, which is in a symbiotic relationship with animals and let's just think that we're going to just like grow a bunch of plants and, and, and just forget for a second about the fact that like they have a critical relationship to animals and you can't just like, no, we're just going to pick and choose what, you know, we want to like, uh, play with right now. And that just, it's just, you know, it's not taking the whole picture into account. Yeah. I had a, um, a family member who is a vegan and she's getting her younger sibling to who is flirting with vegetarianism and veganism and stuff. And um, this guy was talking to me and he's like, you know, honestly, we love it 
because she's an amazing cook and the food we're eating is healthier and better for us. And he's like, we don't eat a single processed thing. In fact, their veganism before they did that, I think maybe the husband and wife were doing like keto or, you know, paleo. And so they were already making the switch to like organic and whole food and they're getting rid of their processed food and their daughter helped accelerate that because, you know, she's not the type of woman that will buy pre-made you know fake versions of you know like a turkey or like a you know like a, this is a bean burger it's just the same thing as a you know regular hamburger she doesn't do that processed vegan stuff she makes everything from scratch and it's awesome and you know you start to hear these things like the overproduction of beef causes an overproduction of methane which is one of the major contributors to greenhouse gas emissions and all that stuff. And so the, like the, now some guy won a prize for building a balloon that captures the methane. And, you're, and you hear this uh, like, oh, my gosh, you know, you're right. We got to get away from meat and all this stuff. Then I watched this random TED talk, and it was a TEDx talk. And I didn't know why. I didn't understand why it was controversial. It was this scientist who was talking about reclaiming desert land by pasteurization and he was going on and on about how you can't reclaim this land without hoofed animals marching all over this place and i'm like okay and then he throws a before and after photo and the before photo was like essentially what you would think of of a desert in africa and the after photo you could see where there was like there used to be a river or like a creek and then you see the after photo. He said, this took us 30 years. And he pushes it. And it's like wild trees and lush grass. And there's a river. Yeah. Yes. And people, it was yes. so controversial. People were like, oh, oh, you bring in a bunch of cattle. And all of a sudden, a river starts flowing. And he's like, no, the river's been flowing. It just it doesn't make it to this place because there's nowhere. There's no roots that are pulling it in. There's no. It's just like immediately draining and disappearing. And he talks about how. You know, now we just have nothing but bare rock. We're losing our topsoil, and you need grass and pastured animals, herd animals. And I was like, yes. what? I don't understand what any Reach of it. this. Yeah. Well, I didn't even know what the hell I was watching. I didn't understand why it was controversial until I read Joel Saladin's book. And he's like, he's like, my family was given a, a farm that had literally bare rock. It had the topsoil had completely gone. And he says, and by us using this movement, we and composting, he said. We now have like a, a foot of topsoil, and I'm the only one who knows where those bare rocks used to be. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's awesome. I mean, again, like it's this isn't um, this isn't uh, that hard to figure out. I mean, if we look at how nature is like, if we look at how those three feet of topsoil was built in the Midwest, like that was built through herbivores, bison. On, on the move in perennial forages, the prairies. And so like, you know, this didn't come from nowhere. And, and, uh, and if you want to grow your organic, you know, veggies, like you need some soil and, the, and, and building soil, like the best way to build soil is with herbivores and perennial forages. And like, I don't want to, you know, unless you want to, I don't want to get into all the nerdy, like how you actually like turn a desert, you know, into, uh, into like a grassland. But, um, but basically, th- these things have you know these animals and plants have evolved uh, to to make that happen. So, in your farm, okay, well, let's back up. Why did you decide to become a farmer? 
So I think, you know, I don't think I totally knew all the reasons at the time I made the decision. And, um, but I, I, I know them better now and I know some of what I thought then. So I was a very stressed out, hand wringing, distraught, self-indulgent, you know, 20 something trying to figure out what to do with my life. And, you know, again, like I understand the, I don't know, the preciousness of this comment, but basically like, you know, I really wanted to have work that wasn't a job. Again, I know, I know how bad that sounds, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but, but basically, you know, like I just wanted an integrated life, you know, I wanted it to not be like a box I checked off, you know, and, uh, and I knew that that was like a luxury, you know, most people in the world are really grateful if they can just like take care of their family. So I, I understand how like, this is a real, like a privileged thing to like, uh, pursue, but nonetheless, like, I think it's a good thing to pursue, um, if you have the opportunity. So anyway, like I wanted something that I felt like matched my gifts and was a way in which I could contribute to good in the world and was a way that was not, you know, in, in like as much, as many ways as possible was not random the rest of my life. So again, like, you know, no surprise, Wendell Berry like really struck a chord, right? That whole idea of like an integrated life, like, you know, the critique of the modern life is that it's disintegrating. You know, you got like your, your, you outsource all the domestic life, you know, you outsource schooling, you outsource cooking, you outsource clothes making, you outsource everything. And you got your kids over here and your church here and your school here and your work here and, you know, your extended family all over there. And, you know, so like the the modern life is all about pulling everything in different directions and and specialization, you know, and and Wendell Berry's point is like, you know what? I don't think that's what makes people happy. (laughs) It might make us wealthy, but I don't think it makes us happy. Um, And uh, so that really struck a chord for me. And and of course, you know. You know, with farming, you walk out your front door and there's your work. Uh, so that's, you know, that integration. Um, and then also in terms of like integration with family life, like, you know, you always like, you know, meet people and you're like, hey, what does your dad do for work or what does your mom do for work? And, you know, it's like, I don't know, they're like a government contractor or they're on IT, I don't know, you know. And like that just, that always like bugs me, you know, <laughs> like it's your dad. You don't know what he does. You know, like he does it five days a week, you know, yeah, no kidding. Uh, and uh, so like I really like that about farming where like my kid, like if you ask my kids, like, what does your dad do? Like they'll be like, what do you mean? At six in the morning or at eight in the morning, you know? Um, so um, like I really appreciate that, too. And then, of course, like how it fits into family life. Like, you know, my kids are helping with me with chores. Like a lot of days I'm having three meals a day with my family. Um, and, and that whole thing. Um, and then I think too, like, I just really enjoy physical work, you know? So like there were things in my upbringing that I don't necessarily think I picked up on, but then now like looking back, I'm like, Oh, that makes sense. So like in high school I had like a little lawn mowing business and like, I really enjoyed that work. And then my dad had a painting business, like house painting, you know? And, um, and I painted and I painted in the summers when I was in college for him. And, um, and like, I really liked it, you know, whereas like, 
I've, you know, I think some of my brothers have been like, I am going to like get a college degree. So I didn't never have to do that again. And, and I was kind of like, I really like this. Um, so I think like the, you know, the sort of like the compelling, like wanting to do something good in the world, uh, and, and then to that end, you know, I'm basically learning about the industrial food system and how it's not oriented towards health and both, you know, health of the people, the animals, the land. Um, so wanting to do some good there and then the integration with the family and then sort of like my just uh, like satisfaction and doing physical work. Um, uh, those all basically those kind of three things were what put it together. But in the moment, you know, actually, I, I remember the moment like I, I was wringing my hands. I was like, am I going to be a be an Episcopal priest? Am I going to be a audio documentarian? Am I going to go to med school? Am I going to be a professor? Whatever the things. And I remember reading one of Joel's books um, and sitting next to my sister on a plane for like a family trip. And I was like, you know what? And, I, and, I, and the backstory here is like I had – I so wanted to get down and do something serious with my life. Like I so wanted to get started, but I felt like hearing that vocation or, or, or being able to make the decision was just an impossible task that I had. I saw no light. I saw no light. It just, I felt like I was rudderless and I just, all I wanted in life was to have a rudder, you know? And, uh, and, uh, and it was in that moment. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. And, uh, and it's, it's a miracle to me. I mean, I feel like if you met me in my, you know, from 17 years old to 27 and had this kind of conversation with me and then have this conversation with me now, I, I mean, I essentially like have no second thoughts about like, well, maybe I should have done that other thing. Like I, I feel like it's, it's a, just a total me like miracle of God and as a gift for someone who was so struggling, you know, with that sort of like vocational thing. Um, so, but anyway, long story, those are the kind of like the three reasons. Man, that's awesome. So what led you into the Catholic church while you're deciding to farm it up? Yeah. So basically, you know, like I mentioned that email before I, um, you know, grew up evangelical and then I first started out at Eastern university outside of Philadelphia where your friend Shane, uh, went and has connections and all that. And, um, and I was part of this great books, uh, program there. And so we were reading like Augustine and Aquinas and Flannery O'Connor and Dante and all this stuff. And so that was kind of the beginning where, just, you know, I was a devout evangelical and I understood that basically like happiness meant loving God and making your life, you know, centered around, you know, God's love. And, um, and so that was kind of like, you know, my, my parents gave me that gift in terms of that, that gift of faith and upbringing. And then when I got there and I sort of began reading sort of all these people from the Christian past, I realized, you know what? Christianity didn't fall out of the sky into my lap. Like there's yeah. all these people that died and thought and wrote and, and, and so that here I am, you know, 2001, like I actually have a Bible and actually have like some decent interpretations of the Bible. And, and so that, I guess basically made me stop being a theological brat. You know, I started to have gratefulness and, 
and respect for the historic church. So then from there, you know, I just, I, like I said, I, I eventually transferred to UVA and I kept studying religious studies and I was reading, you know, Aquinas and all those people. And, um, and then just, you know, more and more. So then I started going to like, a, an Episcopal church. Cause I was like, I want to, you know, have a more like historically rooted, you know, liturgy and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then, and we had this really, you know, we were all these kind of um, those typical like Anglo-Catholics who like, you know, cross themselves and genuflect, you know, way more than Catholics do. <laughs> right, and, right, uh, right. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and uh, just acting so Catholic. And uh, and we had this great group of friends, though. I mean, it was like such wonderful. This was like, so this is after graduating from college. My wife and I were living. Living in and working in Charlottesville, and we had this wonderful group of friends. And I mean, we just like would have parties, you know, like I don't know, it feels like it was like two or three times a week where we're staying up to like two in the morning, like talking theology and just and partying. And, um, and yeah, and and so there's that. And then the other, the other piece of the puzzle was, um, we had this really wonderful landlord, the Catholic family, where they couldn't have kids and they adopted, you know, five kids. And we just sort of like um, they were our backyard neighbor and we just sort of spied on them and were so impressed with their life and um, and what their kids were saying and doing. And um, and yeah, as it turns out, then um, I think it was some 10 or 15 of us in this friend group came into the Catholic Church over the course of several years. Wow. Um, yeah, and one of my close friends is now a, a, a Benedictine monk in Chicago, and he just became a priest this a couple of weeks ago. And um, and uh, yeah, so it was so much fun. We got to come to the church, like my wife and I together, and then all these like really close friends. Um, it was just, I mean, just a, such a beautiful. It was wonderful. Oh man, that is awesome. Yeah. So, what were you studying that was leading you? Like, to go from evangelical to Episcopal, I think a lot of people on the Catholic journey do that because yeah. they need to stay Protestant, but like you said, have those ancient roots, have a feel of liturgical worship. When you were, Does it bother you that there's so much within the Catholic Church that thinks, oh no, our Christianity is irrelevant unless we become more non-denom, evangelical? Like, I mean, like, how do you see all these like trad verse, you know, charismatic verse, you know, yeah. whatever. What I'm just curious as to the lens of someone who grew up evangelical, then went Episcopal, then went Catholic. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I find you guys so interesting is because, you know, like, of course, you know, like I, like I mentioned in that email with you, like I have all those sort of typical allergies you would have as an evangelical who's become Catholic. And, and I, and I acknowledge, like, I don't think they're all good, you know? Um, like what, and, I, for those who didn't read the email, you know, like what are some of your outside of just me and you in this private conversation? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. There's people listening to this. Um, <laughs> maybe, yes. maybe, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So like, I don't know what I was referencing before, like, you know, how you were saying, like, I remember you telling a story about where I think it was maybe, um, an RCIA class where you were just trying to get people to say Jesus out yeah, loud. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, of course, evangelicals, you know, you know, get made fun of for, you know, talking about Jesus with everything, you know, like bringing up Jesus with that, you know, and of course, like emphasizing the personal relationship with Jesus and, and those kinds of things I think are, 
I think sort of like, yeah, that sort of like theologizing everything, you know, is like one of those things I'm like, uh, I don't know. Like you say, this is God's will, but it is, why do you, you know, who are you to say that? And like, uh, and then like, yeah, just talking about like Jesus, like your best buddy. And I'm like, I don't experience that. Am I bad? Um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, so I think those are some of my. Does that? Do you think that clarifies it? Some yeah, of my allergies? It, it, yeah. So right now, in in driving here to Covecrest, um, Google Maps decided to take me on the most scenic route possible, and okay. so I'm bobbing and weaving from Woodstock to Woodstock, Georgia to to Tiger, Georgia, and I'm carving around every turn. I mean, I'm in the middle of the sticks, right? And it's so funny because you'll see, just talking about how evangelicals put Jesus and everything, there, you know, you see billboards that just have a quote about, you know, for God's word is sharper than any two edged sword. And that's it. There's yep. nothing else. It's just some scripture <laughs> and a really yep. ugly 1990s graphic design sword on the billboard. Yep. And it's huge and it must have cost someone a ton of money and they just have it there. And so I'm going, that was next to a highway. And then I get off on the, I'm on the by roads and I saw a sign today that struck me and I said, huh, oh, they're not Catholic. And it was, it was a big, uh, not a big, it was probably the size of like a notebook, right? Like a, you know, like a legal ruled notebook. And it just, it was a yellow sign, metal, nailed to a tree right off the side of the road. And in black letters, it just said, Jesus, nothing else. Huh. You know, and I was like, if you were Catholic, there would be a Mary statue in the garden <laughs> instead of yeah. just just a billboard that says Jesus nailed to a tree. Right, yeah, you but know? that's so appropriate, you know, for Protestantism in terms of like, you know, it's the word. You know, it's not like the uh, the image. The Catholics would have the Mary statue, and they have the word. You know, yeah, that is funny. That is interesting, and and it's funny. It's like it, it's like this desire to have an incarnational. Because to me, when I think of Mary statues and St. Francis of Assisi statues and Sacred Heart of Jesus statues in people's gardens. I think of like a a wonderful incarnational expression of your faith. Yeah. And when I see that, I see a wonderful trying to be incarnational testament to your faith. Like it's a testament to their faith. Like they love Jesus so much, they're going to put his name. It's the first thing you see when you drive by their house. But at the same time, it's like it's interesting because it is only letters, right? Like, yes, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it struck me because as I'm saying this out loud, I watched a movie that we had made for our church, um, like this little promotional film thing that we did for our, our ministry leaders, and it's a wonderful film. But in the editing process, they were showing us these different stages and different routes they could take, and one of them had all these words across the screen, and I was like, oh, oh, get the. <laughs> Those are ruining everything. Like, don't tell me where I am. Show me yeah. where I am in the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they did a brilliant mm-hmm. job. They executed well. But uh, it, it was funny because the words like that pulled me out of the – it was like it was like I was in the realm of sign and emotion and it wanted to be of reason and, you know, the word. And I, that is – that. wow, okay. Maybe I over-philosophize that. But that's really interesting. No, no, I hear what you're saying. And, you know – and, uh, you know, like Luther, right. Wasn't he the one that sort of so into like that, uh, the gospels is spread through like the word spoken. So, and the word spoken is different than the word written. Um, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, and I, and that comes back to like part of, I think 
what I found so much solace in Catholic faith is that there's a part of Protestantism that's it's so so intellectual, you know, in, in terms of so just you know, you have to like know and remember the right things, you know? So it's all a phenomenon in your mind that like gets you there. And that, that, that's really kind of like lonely and scary in some ways, especially when like, you know, you have the whole rest of your embodiment to deal with, you know? (laughs) And, uh, so like, I think, I think, I think like that's what has like, you know, was partly what was so drawing to me towards Catholicism was that like it engaged the rest of my physicality, you know, like I wanted, I, I like, I didn't know I wanted it or I didn't know I needed it or whatever, but like, I didn't want to just go into my room and like ask for forgiveness of my sins by myself. You know, like I want there to be a right that's handed down by the apostles that, that assures me of forgiveness. You know, I, I want that, um, that all that physicality that's involved in that, you know, where you like go in this box and you say these, these words and the priest is there and the priest is there because like a bishop laid hands on a bishop and, and ordained this priest and, and, you know, and this isn't all just sort of like, we're not making this up like on the spot, you know, so all those kinds of things I think were just, um, really just kind of was like cool water, you know, like I was just like, oh, I was just drinking it up. Um, and I guess, you know, the other thing you mentioned about like, what was it like that, that drew me? And I think a large part of it was like that, just that idea that like, I knew this is, this is the, this is, this is appropriately the center of my life. Like Jesus and Christianity, this is, this is what it's all about. And and if I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket, like, I want to have a sure foundation and, and like, you know, growing up, it was always sort of like going one church to the next to the, you know, and it was all about sort of like who gave good sermons. And so it's like, well, you know, you're hopping around and like, there's all these different interpretations and who's the authority. And you could just, you know, just from experience, you could see the, the, um, the fragility of, of that kind of thing. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you mean I'm going to live and die for this thing based on like this very fragile, like arbitrary kind of authority structure where it's like the guy who could, who's the most charismatic gets to like decide what's the right thing to believe. I was like, I, this does not seem like a trustworthy foundation. I want, you know, I want something that like has a, a more uh, defensible, um, compelling foundation. So I think that was sort of like the other thing, just from my upbringing, the whole like church hopping and like, you know, charismatic pastor thing, you know, can I ask you uh, maybe one last question to kind of wrap up, um, wrap up here? Oh, of course, the last question would be, where can people find you? But, and we'll have all the links folks in the show notes. I realized I didn't have my email with me and then I brought it up and I was like, Oh, here's the Wiffle Tree farm VA, you know, like I had all of it in the, email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, what does it look like? on a Tuesday morning for you? Like a Tuesday. What is a Tuesday on, on Wiffle Tree Farm? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so Tuesday is the day that we do our neighborhood deliveries. So that means, you know, we're delivering to different neighborhoods around us to a host family. And so we're, we have to, and then people have ordered on our website and they go and pick up. So we have to like um, put together a bunch of orders in the farm store 
and uh, and get them into coolers and then into our van and on the road. So it's kind of a pretty intense morning getting stuff like out the door. Um, I've actually been having some tough times recently um, where um, I'm pretty <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sort of humbled, I guess. Like um, I've been having uh, my cattle get out of a rented uh, farm, uh, and it's a neighbor of ours. It's their farm, and um, I just didn't uh, do as good of a job as I should have with the fencing. And so I've had cattle getting out, and not just like once, but three times getting over to our neighbors. And, uh, and our neighbors have been like very kind about it, but nonetheless, it's been re- like the last three or four days has been really stressful and frustrating and just kind of like, you know, really frustrated with myself and, and having, you know, like not having time with the family and, and not getting rest. I was hoping I would get, cause I'm just working. So these cattle that are getting out and, and, um, it's my fault. And, um, and so it's just, yeah, I'm, you know, whatever pride I had in like being a really good farmer or something, I, I, I'm, I'm right now I'm feeling much more humble and, and a little broken down, um, uh, on that point. But so the, all that to say is that, um, tomorrow morning we're going to be busy, uh, putting together orders. I'm probably going to have to be running around, um, trying to make sure our cattle situation's not crazy. Um, and then also, unfortunately, one of our like really awesome employees who does the delivering, um, was just, uh, letting me know this evening that he's feeling sick. So <laughs> it, oh, we could be really crunched tomorrow and I might be making deliveries too. Um, and then basically there's like what we call like the chores. So basically, you know, moving chickens to fresh pasture, moving hens to fresh pasture, feeding animals, watering animals, gathering eggs, um, so that stuff, um, is all going to be going on. And, um, and I guess maybe that, maybe to give everyone listening a clear picture of like, you know, what, what we're talking about here. So there's myself, um, and then Jonathan Elliott has been with us for about four years, uh, was full time. And then Ben Fisk, who was an intern last year is now full time. He's the fellow that's sick. And then, um, uh, we have, uh, generally about five interns, that do like a seven month internship that are, you know, help us with, you know, all farm ops and everything. Um, so that what I talked about getting done, that's getting done by, by all of those people. And then we have two part-time people that help us with uh, putting together orders and, um, and, and, and the other odds and ends like that. So, um, that's, that's the, that's the gang. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it'll be it'll be kind of a crazy day. <laughs> and then and then Tuesdays is we, we slaughter and process our chickens on Wednesday morning. So Tuesday evening we're going to load up about 500 chickens um, to get ready for Wednesday morning slaughter. So it'll be it'll be late uh, as well. We'll be finishing up probably like 10 o'clock at night loading chickens and stuff. Um, so um, you know like. You know, I don't know. Some people might be hearing me thinking like, oh, man, this dude is just moaning about this stuff. And like I certainly like I said, I'm I'm definitely feeling like a bit broken down in terms of like, you know, making mistakes and pissing off neighbors or, you know, and and um, and things like that. But like I think there's just confirmation in that, like even with all that stuff going on. I'm, I'm going to wake up in the morning and just be like, you know, adrenaline running, like just want to hit the ground. And, um, and just, I get so much satisfaction and love to do this work. And, uh, 
I like almost, I almost like getting tired if that makes any sense. Like I like just going hard <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and especially like, I don't know when times are tough, you know, and you're working late and things are stressful, there's just something also kind of, um, of course you can't do that forever, but there's something also kind of exciting about like, um, just having to make it happen and, and get it done. And, um, and there's, you know, obviously there's satisfaction in that too. Wow. That's awesome. That is awesome because I sit like a corporate drone in front of a laptop screen and I work and get all this mental anguish and anxiety. And then I stand up and I go home and I think, what the hell did I accomplish today? (laughs) You know, there's a lot more, like I do a lot more office computer work and probably a lot of the listeners like would think, um, you know, just because I don't know, this is, this might be an opportunity to talk about someone else if you don't want, but we, you know, we can keep it short, but basically like a large way of our, of, of our farm to not be controlled by those monopolies I talked about, of course, like, you know, our farming practices are radically different, but, but almost even maybe more importantly is like our business model is radically different and that we are doing an end run around the, the big guys you know, the Purdue, the Tysons, the, all that stuff. And we're going directly to customers. So that means that, that, you know, obviously we have to like raise the food, process the food, package the food, transport the food. Um, but then we have to like connect directly to customers. So a lot of my work is, you know, trying to get the word out there about what we do, communicating with customers, doing things how they, you know, want it done, answering questions, you know, figuring out essentially how to, how to like find the people that want what we raise it takes a lot of work. Um, and so, you know, like anyone who's like running a small business and trying to connect with customers, like that means a decent amount of time behind a computer and a, and a phone. Um, so, you know, I definitely, there's definitely days, um, where, you know, my eyes are blurry cause I've been looking at a laptop for, you know, seven hours or something. Um, so don't, don't think, don't have the wrong idea, you know? So you have to be an online entrepreneur with the new way you're producing food, uh, which is more a, a better harmony with the nature's way of doing food. And so that requires you both to raise the food as well as to sell them online and, and build all those practices. Does your wife, so you're married and you have how many kids? Seven. Seven. So just a yeah. few, just a few. Um, yeah. <laughs> does your does your wife does well, she help out with the like business? In a, in a, sorry, what were you saying? I said, does your wife does she help out with the business? Your kiddos and they. So much more at the beginning. You know, when, when we started in two thousand nine, we had just our baby Josephine, who's now eleven. Um, so uh, you know, and then now, so Josephine's eleven, and then it goes down. Uh, to Xavier, who's about 11 months old. So, um, you know, they're all about two years apart and she's homeschooling. And I don't know, without getting to like whatever nerdy, you know, hoity-toity, like, you know, that whole Wendell Berry thing, like we take homemaking really seriously and Liz like busts her butt to like just make really awesome food and do as much as we can, you know, at home. Um, so all that to say, she's really busy at home and she doesn't do that much in the business though. Of course we like talk about things and she has a lot of gifts where I'm weak that, you know, she'll help me out on, on design and artistic things and things like that. Um, but yeah, she's more so just like keeping her head above water at home. Oh man. 
That is crazy. I mean, we have four kids. We homeschool because we prefer a classical model. But nice. I, I don't have any skills. I don't have any skills. I have no skills. I think I'm, I'm, my desire for woodworking is a desire yeah. to do something with my hands that exhausts me at the end of the day. Yeah. But yeah. The, here's the funny thing about the trades that Mike Rowe pointed out that is so true. Every, or No, actually, it wasn't Mike Rowe. It was Shop Classes Soulcraft. Do you ever read that book? Matthew Crawford. No, I haven't. But oh, uh, he was in Charlottesville when we were there, and uh, so we, you know, we definitely like talked about his ideas a lot. Yeah. So he um, he talks about like every mechanic does more math with more interesting problems than probably a professor in mathematics because his everything about his job is he's constantly having. And his whole thing is like a repairman is more dignified than an engineer because an engineer makes one thing a million times, but the repairman has to deal with a million different things and every problem, even if it's the same engine, it's a different problem, you know? So he's like, every problem for a mechanic is brand new and the mechanic must submit his will to the machine that he's fixing. And it was so funny the way that he phrased it, but like there's this element where the creative side of responding and fixing problems that you didn't cause are it's like it, exp- it so people just think of like oh you're a mechanic you're just a dumb you know you couldn't get a you couldn't go to a four year degree and it's like their brain is in in a sense more holistically formed and or and used you know ah uh, I don't know I think I think as a culture we have so elevated the professions and bastardized the trades. That um, that I, I think I mean I think this is all a part of the to me again it's all a part of the enlightenment because it goes back to the triumph of the mind over everything else, and once we begin to pull back once you see that chemistry biology is not just chemistry you see that ecology is more about biology like how systems interact means more than just analyzing this one thing and dissecting it to death. And that that's part of our, I think, our postmodern healing is uh, it's got to come from that. And it's got to be Catholic or else it's not cool enough. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, you know, there's probably like a lot of fluff in our economy. You know, like you say, people are like, uh, what did I accomplish today? And, uh, and, you know, a person who, you know, actually like fixes things or makes things, you know, they don't have that doubt, you know, like – they know like, okay, this person had a leaky window. I took out their bad window and I put it in a good window and now their window isn't leaking anymore. Like I know what I did. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm done with and, it and I can leave. Yeah. It. <laughs> and, yeah. And, uh, you know, I suspect that like, if we were really honest with us ourselves, you know, all of us, including myself, cause like I said, I'm doing these like running small business kind of things, you know, like, um, there's a lot of work that we do that um, might just be pretty like uh, unimportant and a lot of BS, you know, and uh, and we, we like dress it up and we market it as like sophisticated. But, you know, maybe when like everything is revealed for what it's what it is, there's probably going to be a lot of BS revealed. And uh, and and the people that are you know actually like doing physical good things in the world um are gonna you know they're gonna be the winners yeah it's like you know we just had memorial day 
um, you know, the day to honor the fallen. People always confuse Memorial Day with Veterans Day and all that stuff. But this is specifically people who have lost their lives. And, you know, it, it's that idea of, like, you constantly need to hold in front of your face the unsung heroes. And the farmer and our food supply are, like, to me, the most unsung hero because we benefit and we don't care how. You know, we're just the open mouth at the end of a very long conveyor belt. And we have no idea, number one, that the the food itself is being robbed of, of life and character so that I can get that conveyor belt or get access to the conveyor belt as cheaply as possible. So, um, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for staying up late, even though you got to slaughter a whole bunch of chickens and then drive them to your neighbors. Um, <laughs> yeah. How can someone become an intern with you? Yeah. Um, so probably, you know, you can check out our website, which I think you're going to put in the show notes and, um, and that has information about our internship you can email me at info at wiffletreefarmva.com. Um, you can call me. Uh, my phone number is on the website. Um, and, um, yeah, we're, we're always looking for, for good uh, interns. And, and you know, our, our internship is oriented for people that are either want to have a low-risk way to check out the work as, you know, a possible career or um, for people that know, you know, this is step one of five to having your own farm business. And um, and the goal is basically like to just cheat the learning curve and get you farther along so that you're set up to uh, maybe answer that question of is, is this right for you and or, you know, not make all those expensive, frustrating mistakes I've made and do it the right way the first time. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely, you know, uh, something that we are always looking for. And, um, and, uh, if you have any other questions or whatever else, you know, please feel free to, to reach out to me. Are you, do you actively recruit about seven a year? Is that your goal? Yeah, mm-hmm, that's right. Nice. And do they stay with you guys in the big, I just imagine you have like a barn and then right next to the <laughs> barn are perfectly made tiny houses that you would see on like HGTV and you just bloop, bloop, yeah. bloop, bloop, bloop. And You're that's not that far off. Um, so we have, um, two intern housing for, you know, guys and ladies. And, um, and one of them used to be a hen house that we turned into a tiny house. Um, so that's, <laughs> that, that's true. And then the other one, um, is in the back of this, the, the lady who had the farm back in like the thirties had this, uh, collected antique carriages. So, we built this uh, apartment in the back of the antique carriage museum. Um, and uh, yeah, but um, you had to live on the farm, a pretty, you know, a, a good stipend. And, um, and we will, you know, teach you everything that you want to learn. And, uh, and then basically I'll be your lifelong free consultant. So when you start your business, you call me up with any question and I'll just, you know, open my books to you. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. How, how do you kill a chicken? <laughs> um, all right. So uh, you want me to get like down and dirty on this? Yeah. Like like okay. you have a chicken. Do you name your chicken? Do your kids name the chickens? And then no. you're like, hey, guys, we're going to eat Harold tomorrow. <laughs> no. We, we, we'll raise and slaughter about 10,000 chickens this year. So um, 
I, uh, I have a joke with one of my childhood friends that I just named them all Daniel after him. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but no, so I mean, uh, so basically what we do is there's these like stainless steel cones. They look like a traffic cone, but a little bit smaller and we'll put the chicken in upside down. The chicken's head comes out and I, I, I'll kill the chicken by hand with a knife. And so I'll basically cut both of the main arteries, um, in the neck without cutting the windpipe. So a couple things here, like, you know, again, I can't help but get nerdy on this stuff, but I think it's really important to like kill the animal by hand as opposed to by a machine. I feel like, again, like that separates you from the animal and, and just leads to disrespect and, you know, um, a lack of gratefulness to the oh, animal. And you're just happening. like, so you're just like Ned Stark in Game of Thrones, right? The man who passes the sentence must be the one that swings the sword. I get it. Go on. I'm right there with Good. you. I, I have not watched Game of Thrones, but um, yeah, it sounds right. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so then, and then the, the reason I just cut the, the arteries is because that way the chicken's experience of death is fainting as opposed to choking, where if I were to cut the windpipe. So it's a more humane way to die. Even if, if, I, had to, if I had to choose you know, how I was going to die, I'd rather faint than choke to death. Um, and, uh, so you don't and choke then, the chicken. That's good to know. You don't choke the chicken. Yeah. <laughs> good. And then, uh, and then um, yeah, and then another good thing about that is that you'll get a better bleed. So the more blood is expelled from the animal and you've probably eaten chicken drumsticks where there's like that dark part near the, the bone. And that's from a bad bleed, um, where not as much blood was expelled and that doesn't, you know, it is not good for the quality of the meat. Ooh. Um, so it's, yeah. Um, so those are, you know, that's, that's how we do it and kind of why we do it the, the way we do. Um, but you know, so just like, like just like in food Inc, with Joel Salad, that's what the, he's yes, just talking right. to you like yeah. no big deal, and he's just slicing necks and bloods everywhere. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Like when I first got into this, it was not that way. And actually, um, so I, I wanted to intern at Polyface with Joel Saladin, but um, my wife and I were married and had a baby, and they don't have family housing, so that wasn't going to happen. So I just sort of like pieced it together by taking day trips down there and using his book and calling and emailing and writing letters and all this stuff. And, uh, so the first time I went down there to help them process chickens so I could learn, you know, um, I get down there and, uh, you know, Joel's my hero, right? So like I, and I'm the city slicker, so I'm just doing everything I can to like, you know, not, uh, disappoint my hero. And, uh, so I get out of the car they are like, all right, so what do you want to start with? And I'm like, well, you know, whatever, wherever you need me, you know, I'm, I'm playing it cool. And, um, and they're like, all right, well, why don't you start with a slaughtering, you know, right at the front there. And, and I mean, I was, my stomach was doing flips. Like, I didn't know if I was going to have to like try and like sneak around the corner to barf in the grass <laughs> because like, I didn't want Joel to see me. And so like, yeah, I mean, I definitely like, you know, I, I totally get it. Like I didn't grow up with this. So I understand, you know, uh, how, when you're not around, you know, this, you know, how it feels the first time, um, so, uh, you know, I, I get it. It's weird. Yeah. So how did you, did you just get over it and 
Yeah, thankfully, you know, it's one of those situations where – have you ever been in a situation where you have to tell your parts of your body to do the things they're supposed to do? So you're like, OK, right hand, you know, go up in the air and grab this chicken. Left hand, grab the wings. And it was, you know, like I just forcing my body to like do go through the motions um, and, uh, it, you know, it was probably sort of like a seeing myself in the third person kind of thing. And, uh, but eventually, you know, like, uh, you, you, you know, I got more comfortable with it and I understood, you know, and then eventually you learn like how much skill it takes. Like you think like, Oh, that's easy. You just like cut the neck. And it's like, no way. Like to do it well, it takes a lot of skill. And so then you're, and then you're like, you know, more worried about concentrating on doing the job well than like, you know, how it feels or, you know, those, those kinds of things. Then, then you're so concentrated that you don't feel the spray of blood all over your face. See, this is just the, the <laughs> suburbanite, right? Like, uh, my chicken is headless yeah. and comes frozen in a bag. Like, I don't know what yeah. you're talking about. Hey, you know, you, you, you and Luke should, uh, come and if you're ever in the DC area, you should come out and process chickens with us sometime. Holy do that. What <laughs> I would, and you, you process chickens year round, right? 10,000, you're doing 500 no, a clip, right? We, or we'll no? start. We, we do it every Wednesday, some Fridays, and it's, you know, May to uh, Thanksgiving, essentially. Um, it's not good for the birds with the passion to be out in the winter on ground. So oh, we right. just do it, you know, spring, spring to fall. Um, I, I forget you Virginia people have winters. I Down in Texas, <laughs> we do not. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time. If people want to look you up, they're going to go to wiffletreefarmva.com. And there they can find um, all their stuff. You also have a Facebook page. We're going to put all the links yep. into the show notes. The funny thing was I was just as excited to talk to you about your conversion to Catholicism as I was the farming stuff. Um, yeah. So so do you have family housing if people are married and they want to come check it out or no for your internship stuff? Um, yes, we have done that before. It, it's uh, So basically like, we can talk about that. It's obviously not as easy to pull off, but – it's something we've done before and we can talk about. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. I, I dream of being financially independent where my family decides, you know what? Let's just see America through an RV. And I sell my home and I drive an RV and I just park it on your property. We slaughter like 6,000 chickens just for the hell of it. And then I drive <laughs> off into the sunset with all the wings I can eat. Yeah. Let's make it happen. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. And uh, yeah, everyone, Wendell Berry. What's the book? What was the title of the Wendell Berry book? The first one was A World Lost. Uh, and then from there, it was just like, you know, I could. A lot of people like Wendell Berry for his uh, his essays, but I'm, 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 I'm a sucker for his fiction. I was just about to say, like. I like the essays, and then I was like, nah, he's, he's got all these fiction books. Maybe I should read them. And I just I – never, I never did. I never pulled the trigger. So, um, yeah. So he's the – for people who don't know Wendell Berry, uh, he's the poet philosopher of the farmland. Yeah, I mean – Rural he, America. Yeah, he's sort, of, he's sort of like the godfather of you know, the agrarian movement. But, he, but he's a farmer in Kentucky and you know, writes poetry and fiction and essays. Yeah, and he's an amazing writer. Amazing. Yeah. And he's also, uh, who's his favorite? Uh, he is, oh, what's the guy? Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. He does all this woodworking. Um, uh, what is it? Nick? Uh, Nick Offerman. 
and Wendell Berry is his hero as well. Uh, he has a big woodworking shop right in L.A. I think right in Hollywood. Um, and yeah, and he's like, people ask me all the time, "What should I do if I want to get a woodwork?" And I'm like, uh, "Start working wood and call and read Wendell Berry. Like that's it. That's all you need to do." So anywho, yeah, this was awesome, man. So thank you. Hopefully your your business will benefit from the catching foxes bump. Uh, we all know that that will bring wealth and honor and prestige to your life. <laughs> Pretty soon you'll be right. making that EWTN money. Move over, Tyson. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, I, I just want to thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's been fun talking. And, um, yeah, I just appreciate that you're you know interested in this topic and, and getting other people thinking about it, you know, like – um, I, I obviously I think this is really important and and uh, I appreciate you like you know taking an interest in, in talking. Yeah, you know it's so funny because we've been trying to do this for so long and off and on, um, and in the meantime I have a buddy who I track with. We had him on uh, one of our early episodes and he's a coworker of mine and we talk about Wendell Berry and uh, Joel Salatin and he's the one that told me to get folks this ain't normal. And I got, and I yeah. love that book. But we talk about this stuff, just me and him. What I imagine you and your Anglo Catholic friends did. Me and him in my office. My my uh, assistant Mary Beale. She's so funny. Someone said, "Oh my God, you work with Gomer? That must be amazing." And she's like, "No, at like eight a.m. They're talking about French feminism and St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> it's driving me insane. I'm trying. <laughs> uh. oh, bless her soul. So now it's going to be all Joel all the time." Um, yeah yeah man this was so awesome thank you so much for joining me yeah cool thanks so much for having me yeah yeah enjoy the slaughter of the lambs (laughs) 